This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. The neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now here's your host, Toby Passman. All right, we have a special guest on the show with us today, Dr. Ken Starr. Dr. Starr is board certified in emergency medicine and addiction medicine. He's an authority in the field of addiction medicine and wellness. Since founding the clinic in 2012, after the overdose death of his brother, Dr. Starr has been committed to helping patients achieve lasting sobriety and improve the quality of their lives. Dr. Starr utilizes medications, supplements, traditional and non-traditional therapies that help people overcome chemical dependency and live the lives they know are possible. His current areas of interest include advancing drug and alcohol detox methods, facilitating long-term recovery, IV nutrition programs for optimal health, and men's health programs. Dr. Starr's passion about NED therapy has enabled the uh, clinic to become the most experienced provider of NED treatments on the West Coast. So Dr. Starr, super excited to have you on the show with us today. Hey, thanks, Toby. Great to be here, and thanks so much for having me. So tell me a little about your story in terms of, as I briefly alluded to in the bio, it sounds like so the, the death of your brother seemed to kind of be the, the <clears throat> genesis of all of this sort of happening. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I had, um, I had trained on, in emergency medicine. I finished my training in 2000. I was in your neck of the woods. I was in Eugene, Oregon for the first 10 years of my practice doing full-time emergency medicine and, you know, fire and EMS and, you know, uh, medical director and paramedic training and all that kind of stuff. Moved to California in 2010. And at that point, around 2010, I started, 2011, I started to kind of get, I don't know, just a little tired of emergency medicine. I was very interested in addiction medicine because a good friend of mine is an addiction psychiatrist in Portland. And, and he had talked to me just all about work he was doing with, you know, medication assisted treatment and buprenorphine. And, and I, I really kind of was drawn to that and I, and I liked it and it sounded good. And so I started playing with that idea like well maybe i should do something with addiction medicine then my brother who had a lifelong history of substance abuse problems overdosed and died in 2011 and i felt like that was my calling like wow this is affecting everybody and then it was almost like you know how like when you see an ant all of a sudden you see one ant and then you look and you're like oh my god there's millions of ants you know that's how addiction medicine was for me so i I kind of use that as a catapult. I, I, I started to do some more training and eventually got board certified in addiction medicine. But as I started offering substance abuse treatment, I realized that, wow, this is affecting everybody. And so the clinic just blew up. And over the years, we've just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and affected more lives. And which it, I just, it was just a good timing. I mean, at that point where I live in San Luis Obispo, there wasn't a lot of options, right? There was sort of a the county program if you were mandated because of probation or you had Medi-Cal or something like that, or there's like, you know, luxurious five-star, you know, $2,000 a day overlooking the beach rehabs that California is known for. But what about, what about just drug and alcohol programs for everyday people that are outpatient where they can get counseling, medication support and get treatment and live life on life's terms, right? We're not just throwing you on in, in a rehab for 30 days. It's like, you know, outpatient. So I just got interested in that and started doing that and continued to work emergency medicine. But over the years, you know, every year it would just be like one less ER shift a year, you know, a month per year and then more clinic days. And actually, as of July, I uh, retired from emergency medicine just earlier this summer and just do the clinic now full time. So, uh, yeah, so my brother's death was really important in, in, in letting me commit to that um, to that practice and. And I felt like, you know, if we had the services back then that we have now, maybe his outcome would have been different. So in terms of talking about what's going on kind of in the brain with addiction, you know, what, what's going awry that is, you know, leading people to kind of end up, you know, throwing away their lives or just risking so much to continue using whatever substances or alcohol um, 
you know, what, what kind of brain changes are taking place there? Well, I probably couldn't give you a satisfactory explanation from, from the neurobiology level that you're probably used to, but it's clearly a dopamine reward system that's gone awry, right? For, for lots of different reasons, partly because of maybe upbringing or trauma or emotional distress, people are more vulnerable, but probably there's a genetic component because we know addiction happens to just every people, no matter what, you can have a great family, a great upbringing and become an addict. And you could obviously have a lot of trauma, neglect, abuse, abandonment, and maybe you're more, you know, you're more prone to addiction. So it's the simple answer. It's, 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 it's your dopamine reward system that's really become out of control and and um, that positive reinforcement found in substances quickly turns to negative reinforcement and I can explain that if you want where such that then people who have been using anything for a while will just tell you they're just using to feel normal right not to get high or to check out or just just to feel normal right because you this the neuroadaptations can take place so quickly you know we see that clearly, you know, most commonly with alcohol and opiates, but, um, you know, I think benzos are, and we've talked about this offline, but, you know, benzos, I've had patients who take, you know, benzos for a week and have spent years trying to get off of it. So everything, everyone has their sort of their sensitivity and their, and, and, and their vulnerabilities to these medicines. And for a lot of people, that first drink or that first pain pill is just like that big warm hug that, they have always wanted and felt like they needed. And then, and um, that's not the typical normal response, but it's, it's a, a very real response. And then that's just kind of the beginning of the conditioning and the neuroplasticity that goes on to affect that sort of reward system. Got it. So when it comes to, to treating addictions, you've implemented, you use a lot of NAD, uh, to treat addiction. Can you tell me a, a bit about just, you know, and the listeners a little yeah. about what NAD is and how you got introduced to it? Sure. Yeah. Great story. So I was just doing drug and alcohol treatment in San Luis and standard kind of medications counseling. I, I wouldn't say we had any sort of novel approach or anything alternative or different. Then they had a patient, <clears throat> Toby, who said that he was going to go to Louisiana and do brain restoration therapy for his addiction. And of course, at that time, I'm just super skeptical. I'm just, you know, thinking, yeah, whatever, go ahead, go to, go do your fairy dust on your head and come back. Well, I followed up with this guy, you know, at some point later, and he, he was great. He's doing fine. Like, really? Oh yeah, no, I'm off. I'm, no cravings. I've been sober for you know six months. And okay, well, now what is this called? Where did you go? And then I got curious. Like, okay, well, this is something might be here. So I found out about Dick Medier, Richard Medier, who was in Springfield, Louisiana at the um, Springfield Wellness Program. And I started talking to him and <clears throat> I said, hey, well, how, how do I do this? He's like, well, you know, you need to come out here and you need to learn how to do NAD. It's not like I'm just going to tell you in a minute on the phone. So I took my one vacation that year and I went down to Springfield, I think in the in the heat of the summer if i remember right it was like humid and nasty i was like oh my god but but what i saw really changed my life i mean i saw patients detoxing in, in their program off of alcohol off of opiates off of high dose opiates who were doing amazing like i had not seen that before i'd never seen anybody you know day four day five kicking methadone who's relaxed hanging out reading a book eating lunch feeling fine i mean these patients are you know, shitting themselves in the corner, right? This is not a good experience. And these people are doing great. Well, I did a, I did a week there or so. And I just remember flying back to California and just having this, this vision. It's like, this is going to change the face of substance abuse recovery nationally. I mean, this is the new standard. What I saw NAD infusions do to reduce withdrawal and craving I thought, I'm bringing this to the West Coast. This is, this is unbelievable. So we started our NAD program back, I'm going to say around 2014. So what is that, seven years ago, maybe? And, um, and that's how we started with NAD. So, you know, so NAD is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a 
a vitamin, it's a coenzyme of, of the B vitamins, but you can't just take NAD by, you can't just increase your NAD by taking niacin, which is a big misconception. You can't do that. But anyway, if you give IV NAD and people figured this out back in the fifties, there's articles uh, uh, back in the fifties where, where we knew that um, if you gave NED to patients and the original study actually came out of Seattle, um, that it reduced all cravings and withdrawal from people who are detoxing and not just detoxing up alcohol, which is probably the most robust response, but you know, barbiturates and stimulants and sedatives. And um, for some reason, I'm not sure it fell out of favor. I think probably because methadone came into the picture and was much more profitable for centers. Um, but we, we started our ND program and it, it, you know, and that was pretty early. Now, now everybody's offering NAD, right? Every infusion clinic and wellness practice and IV therapy center in the mall and everybody will do NAD. Now that's really for a wellness indication. They're just doing it for longevity and to feel good and to feel better. And it does do that, but it's a little bit more complicated for withdrawal and detox, but that's kind of our expertise. And that's been my interest. So now we still offer NAD. I think it, it actually ends up being kind of a small part of our program now. I think most of our substance abuse patients don't do NAD just because the time and the cost is, is kind of restrictive for more for a lot of people. But we, I love it and I do it when I can. I, and I think those patients, you know, turn around faster, um, have a have a, have a better, um, they just get feeling better faster is really the way to explain it. When people ask you, like, well, explain what it is. What, what I say, Toby's like, look, if you stopped using pain pills right now, okay, a year from now, you're going to be fine, okay? Your, your, your brain will recover and you'll be okay. But it's going to be a rough few months, right? There's acute withdrawal, which you know what that is. But then there's post-acute withdrawal, right? We're just fatigued and you don't have any energy and you have a lot of anxiety because your brain really hasn't started making that sort of neuro, that neuroprotective soup, the normal amount of endorphins and encephalins you need to feel good, right? To feel motivated, to get out of bed, to want to go do stuff, to hang out with your friends, to go work out, right? You, you need a certain amount of, of dopamine and um, endorphins in your system, which are not there, right? So, and that's why the relapse rate's so high, right? You take people, they'll go through detox, they'll get a week or two behind them, they feel like they've got this, but they feel horrible for months. They just depressed and anxious and don't want to do anything. And then they just take that one pill one time and boom, they feel great. It's right back where they started. And that's the, the cycle of addiction. Well, what NAD, NAD, NAD can get you feeling like that year, how you're going to be a year out. I can get you feeling like that, you know, a month out with NAD. It really just provides this sort of rapid restore restoration. I wish I understood the, all of the molecular biology of how it works. I mean, I certainly can explain how NAD is involved in alcohol metabolism because you can just Google alcohol metabolism, look at a picture and you can see that you burn up all your NAD metabolizing alcohol. But any of this, on, and it, all, this, all these substances really induce a lot of stress on your central nervous system that deplete your NAD. And NAD is just pivotally involved in over 400 systems, your immune function, your aging, your sleep, your stress response. I mean, everything is just dependent on your nervous system working optimally and NAD is just such a core component of that. So when you deplete people of NAD, they're just really not doing well, right? Their cravings are high and there's studies and we, I can link to it, but there's studies now that show that if you give NAD, people have less cravings for drugs. Um, so anyway, that was my interest in NAD and, and, and we're, I'm a big believer in NAD. I've become a little bit more selective, you know, about it, the patients now over the years, uh, as I've seen see people do better on some things than others. But um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of my experience with NAD is I found out about it from a patient who did it and I just learned from them and then got interested. And then as I've been in the space longer, I've actually, you know, just uh, connected with people all over the country now. Uh, on NAD, there's been two or three conferences nationally on NAD for practitioners of NAD. Um, I think more people are familiar with it now. Um, there's a, a nurse in, in Monterey who just has a, a wellness practice and she does way more NAD, NAD than I do, but she's just given it for wellness and anti-aging and you know feel good and feel better and that kind of stuff. And she does 10 times more NAD than me. But we have people coming for like, you know, for longer programs to you know, detox off opiates to detox off. Uh, when, when, when traditional therapy hasn't helped, I think there's a role for NAD. Uh, I love the alcohol response is my favorite. My alcohol patients, they always just 
respond really wonderfully and predictably to NAD. So that's probably my favorite patients to give NAD to. Um, but there's a role for other things. And of course, we use it for neurocognitive impairment, neurocognitive decline, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, real kind of mixed success. I don't try to overpromise it, but um, neuropathic pain, a lot of like facial pain, uh, migraines, there's been a role for NAD. Trigeminal neuralgia, we've had surprising uh, results with that. Interstitial cystitis, just kind of like when your nervous system gets mixed messages, right? I mean, it just kind of gets the, 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 the chronic improper, uh, the chronic stimulation just kind of results in, in an improper signal generation if it's that stress response there is too long. So, you know, there's been NAD use for regional pain syndromes and complex reflex sympathetic dystrophy. So it, it's really, I, I mean, the most simple way is it's just like a central nervous system mitochondrial tonic, right? It's just things, you know, people report, wow, my vision's better, my hearing's better. Wow, okay, well, that's cool. I, that wasn't what you came in for, but that's good to know. So yeah, we love NAD. And, and, and for a while, it was really the majority of our practice as we've kind of grown now into more of a, a wellness practice. We, uh, it's, it's not a, a, the biggest part of our practice anymore, but we still get a lot of NAD patients and a lot of interest in NAD. Um, I just think we have a reputation now for really being knowledgeable about NAD. So, but as it's become more available and accessible, I think that you know, people aren't really coming in from all over the country as much as they used to because there are NAD providers now in their cities or their states that are probably closer, which I respect. I wanna make it easy and as possible and, and, and as accessible as possible. So that's a little quick, kind of a quickie on NAD and, and, and what it is and how I started using it. And you were mentioning a bit about the dopaminergic system being a bit faulty when it comes to addictions. Do we know if NAD is involved in dopamine metabolism? Is it affecting that dopamine system at all? You know, it must be. I, I think, I think there. Well, yes, it, it does. Uh, how? I'm not sure. I know that there is actually an alcohol metabolite that binds NAD that affects the reward system. I remember seeing something about that when I was reviewing literature, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, it's definitely cooling down the, the stress uh, pathways. And I think that there's actually evidence that NAD has some dopamine binding, if I, if I, if I, if I recall you know, correctly. I wish I would have prepared better for that question, but I think there is evidence that NAD directly affects the reward system because you see that clinically, right? So in other words, there was a study that came out of Springfield that was prevented at the Academy of Neurosciences meeting in DC about 10 years ago, where they looked at cravings in the substance abuse treatment program. And they had, they had what, you, what you normally see is as people go you know, day after day after day after day in a treatment program, cravings increase normally, right? And they showed compared to control that cravings decreased in all this, in all the self-reported scores in people who got NAD. Every day people got NAD as far as 10 days out, they had less and less and less and less cravings. And people who didn't get NAD had more and more and more and more cravings, right? Which is again, why relapse is so high. So it, it is affecting reward in the dopamine system, you know, in some way. And there's a lot that we don't know. I know that um, Ross Grant, who's a, a big NAD researcher down in Australia, one of the probably the leading researcher of NAD in the world, he talked and, and he said there's there's mechanisms of NAD that we don't understand and we don't even know how it really gets into the cell. Um, the Chromadex people, the you know the nicotinamide riboside guy, I can't remember Richard, uh, can't remember his name. He says, well, does you know you can give NAD, but you're just you're not doing anything with NAD because it's too big to get into the cell. It has to be degraded into its precursors, its metabolites like NMN, nicotinamide mononucleotide, and NR, nicotinamide riboside, to be integrated into the cell to work. And um, he basically poo-poos any IV NADs, like your, your, your snake oil cells and forgiving IV NAD. And I've heard other people, pretty knowledgeable people also kind of mention that. But Ross Grant, who has no skin in the game, I mean, he's just an NAD scientist, he's in cell NAD. He has proof that there's uh, NAD uptake 
systems, that they're systems that uptake NAD right into the cell. They haven't been defined or characterized, and that's what his lab is doing in Australia now. But he, he has experiments that show, no, there is a way that NAD is getting to the cell without being broken down. It's not too large a protein. So there's some contention in that field. And I've been at the conferences where these guys, these researchers all debate each other. It's a little bit over my head. But, uh, you know, look at, I, I give NAD and it makes a huge difference in people right away. So um, I, I think it works. I, I, I don't know the, the, the cell signaling pathway and the uptake you know, protein mechanism to probably explain it to your more scientific crowd. But, you know, I think for supplementing though, I think there's absolutely a role. I'm, I'm, I actually prefer, and you're probably the first person I've told this to, I actually prefer giving like oral nicotinamide riboside or oral MNN as a precursor to people rather than just giving sublingual NAD or, or nasal spray NAD. I think there's, I, I feel personally more of a benefit when I do that. And, um, but I you know there's a following, you know, there's a following, lots of people like the nasal spray NAD or the sublingual NAD, but like I, I take, I take nicotinamide riboside more than I take regular NAD because I just feel like it has more of an effect on me. So there's lots of ways to skin a cat, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, NAD ends up being a very important modulator in wellness and longevity and in, in health span, right? Um, and my angle has always been substance abuse and recovery, and that's how I've gotten interested in it. But clearly, like, you know, the vast majority of people now even coming into the clinic aren't even coming in for substance abuse treatment. They're coming in for NAD programs, for mindfulness, for wellness. We have a big transcendental meditation group of women that comes in and does NAD. They feel like it, alt they feel like it really boosts their kind of awareness and sensitivity. So it, I'm fascinated by it. I learn more and more all the time. Um, there was a paper that came out that said your NED level is probably your biggest predictor of dying from COVID, right? I mean, people who are unhealthy or hypertensive or obese or diabetic or older all have in common low NED levels. And this, and there's a paper, again, I could find it and send it to you where it said that that's probably supplementing with NED is probably preventative for that. You know, I thought that was interesting. So, yeah, so it, it, it pretty clearly has cognitive improvement. It clearly has uh, helpfulness with, with withdrawal and craving, which is, you know, my passion. So, um, I don't know, we've treated hundreds of patients, right, over the last, gosh, seven years now, six, seven years. So, we're, 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 we're blessed and grateful to do it. I think it's, I think it's a game changer, you know, and I think, and it's a good alternative because so many people have tried everything else, you know, lots of, Patients have been off of, you know, opiates or off of benzos for months and months and months, and they just have very protracted withdrawal. I think that's a great role for NAD. I love giving people, those people, five, seven days of NAD when they've done everything right, they've kicked it, but they're suffering. And like, you know, we've had, we've had people been off of benzos for a year, come in and do NAD because of post-acute withdrawal. Again, things that most people don't have any uh, believability for, right? Most doctors will, will say you're full of shit. If you tell me you DC'd your, you know, your volume a year ago and you feel like you're still on withdrawal. I, I just don't think most doctors are going to give that credence, but it's absolutely a case. I get emails from people every day from all over the country asking, tell me about their, um, their battle with, you know, trying to regain normalcy in, you know, in a post opiate or post benzo state. And they didn't, they didn't just jump off yesterday. I mean, these people have been off of meds for years sometimes. So, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. We love doing it. And it's an, it's an interesting um, area to work. Have you ever heard of a QEEG brain map? QEEG stands for Quantified Electroencephalography and is a neuroscience tool that enables a visual representation of raw EEG or brainwave data. It shows us which areas of the brain are producing healthy amounts of electrical activity, too much activity or too little activity in each brainwave frequency. And it helps us direct personalized neuromodulation based on individualized differences in brainwave signatures. Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro will be offering QEEG brain maps for individuals in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area beginning in November of 2021. Check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com, sign up for our newsletter, and keep up to date for when we'll be able to offer these services. 
Now, besides NAD, what are some of your other favorite sort of treatment modalities that you use in your clinic? Well, I think our other favorite treatment modality is ketamine. Uh, the, and the other things that we just have a general IV infusion practice as well. So, you know, high dose vitamin C and minerals and vitamins and electrolytes and so forth. I think that there's a lot of people with just such poor and shitty nutrition and chronic stress that just giving them like a Myers cocktail a couple of times a week, you know, results in just a major improvement in their mood and their stress levels and in their health. But ketamine is, 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 inter is probably the other interesting infusion that we have. And I got interested in that because I, I had already been using ketamine in the ER for 20 years. I mean, I've been using ketamine all the time, right? For pediatric injuries and sedation and so forth. So I was super comfortable and familiar with it. And then as this literature came out about how effective it was for treatment resistant mood disorders like unipolar, bipolar depression, treatment resistant anxiety, PTSD, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And we were already doing infusions. I mean, I already had a nurse here. We're already doing infusions. I already had this familiarity with ketamine. Like, well, let's, let's start doing ketamine. So then we opened up the ketamine center, which is really just an added service to our wellness group. And we've been doing that for a few years. It really didn't get busy until probably this year. It's, it's kind of kicked up the lock a lot, probably post pandemic, but um, ketamine has a, just a very um, anxiolytic uh, effect and improves depression and relieves anxiety for a lot of people when you do these, you know, um, these infusions. So that's been a big game changer and, and added to our arsenal of, um, of mental health treatment as well. I think we're still the only med ketamine program on the entire central coast. I'm surprised there aren't more. I mean, I, I think it's easy. I think it's safe. I think it's effective. Um, so yeah, so ketamine is a big part of our program here too. And now with ketamine, is it mainly just the mental health patients that you're treating with ketamine or do you find well, any efficacy with like treating substance abuse and rehabilitation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for the most part, we're, we're using just the standard um, National Institute of Mental Health protocols for mental health treatment. So the vast majority of patients are depression and anxiety that just hasn't responded to first or second line treatments. Um, that's the majority. The other thing is, yes, ketamine has been shown to have a role in detox and recovery. And um, there was a paper that showed that ketamine has a role in preventing alcohol relapse and alcohol cravings. Again, probably by just really working as a strong NMDA receptor antagonist and decreasing glutamate, which is excitatory. So that I have used it in, um, in opiate and alcohol withdrawal, as well as uh, more prolonged recovery. Yes, I have used it for that. And then there's pain protocols too, <clears throat> which are different. That's higher doses for a longer duration of time. <clears throat> so for perspective, uh, a, a, a depression or anxiety treatment is typically like 40 minutes. That's kind of what the standard is. Uh, we'll maybe draw it up to an hour for some reasons, but the pain protocols are, are, are double the dose over like anywhere from two to four hours. Um, I'm not a real big salesman on using ketamine for pain. I've had a few patients that had dramatic and lasting improvements in chronic pain from ketamine, but the, most people don't. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, and when it does help, it doesn't last that long. So it kind of depends on the experience. I mean, I had a guy who really had a miraculous response just a few weeks ago that blew me away. Um, but a lot of times, like when I was using ketamine in the hospital for pain, by the time they were checking out, their pain was back. So I, was, I wasn't like a big believer in it, but um, these higher doses for longer periods of time certainly have a role. I think it, it, it depends on the type of pain. So the way I explain it is, if you have a mechanical cause for your pain, ketamine is not the treatment, right? If your knee hurts because you have degenerative arthritis in your knee, <clears throat> ketamine is not going to do anything. But when you have your <clears throat> central nerve system is just um, hypersensitive, hypersensitive because of a regional pain syndrome, again, typically this is, you know, CRPS or fibromyalgia, um, or 
a similar pathway or maybe chronic back pain that now functionally is just chronically inflamed and in, in, an area of sensitivity. I've seen ketamine help that quite a bit. Um, so it, it, honestly, all those patients who are coming in for that, they've tried everything else already. You know what I mean? They're not people who have not, who are like naive to, to the healthcare system. These are patients who have been to neurologists that have pain, had pain pumps or stimulators or, uh, you know, they've tried every single medication out there. And now this is their last alternative. Like, yeah, I heard about this. My doctor told me about this. And then these are the guys like, my God, why didn't I do this 10 years ago? Holy shit. You serious? Okay. You know, this is great. So, and if it works, that's great. Uh, and then maybe we'll just do a booster every month or every six months or everyone's different. You know, the durability, as we've talked about is, is, is the most unpredictable thing. Like say we do ketamine and it works great. Well, how long does that last, right? Is it going to last three weeks? Is it going to last three months? And that is really just a wild card. I, I have a psychiatrist who comes in for a ketamine infusion once a year. He comes in once a year. He's like, this holds me all year. This is amazing. No, no, no. Sorry. He comes in twice a year. He comes in every six months. And I thought, wow, okay. Well, I mean, you would know. He's just a local psychiatrist. He knows, he knows the stuff. And I, I think that's the exception. I think most people end up coming in probably every six weeks for a, maybe a little booster. But, you know, if it works great, but only lasts a week, I mean, you can do ketamine every single week, you know, I, I don't know how practical that is, just in time and money and so forth. So it's, a, it's an individual decision. But I think, you know, there's a lot of information on ketamine out there on the internet and research. So it's clearly a lot more mainstream than NAD. If you start Googling, you know, and researching NAD in patient, you're just not going to find much. There's not much published there's a handful of stuff, but it's not really good randomized quality, double blind, placebo controlled stuff. A lot of it's, oh, I don't know. A lot of it's uh, <clears throat> sort of people selling ketamine. You know, I mean, like, for example, Springfield Wellness Center, who's by far the most experienced ketamine program in the world. They've, they've were involved in a lot of the research. And it's good research. I mean, they've brought in external scientists to help design the research protocols and so forth. But, you know, I don't know. They're in the business of selling NAD. So. Now, when it comes to ketamine, I interviewed uh, an anesthesiologist who uses ketamine in his practice in LA, Dr. David Majubi, a few episodes ago. And he was discussing in terms of the way people are, are benefiting in terms of their mental health symptoms, he was saying he thought it was like a 60, 40 balance in terms of, I believe it was 60%, you know, the, the just sort of neurochemical biological effects of ketamine. And then he thought 40% of it is the actual kind of experience uh, that ketamine produces that is therapeutic for a lot of patients. I just wanted to kind of run that by you and hear, hear your take as far as, you know, people who are really improving with ketamine, do you feel like it is just something that the chemical is doing or are they having, is it facilitating some sort of mystical, spiritual sort of experiences that are, mm -hmm. that are improving people's symptoms? Um, I, no, I think, I think he's right. You know, I mean, studies have shown that ketamine does work by producing changes in the brain, reversing neural damage caused by stress and depression and decreasing inflammation and cortisol levels. But certainly part of it is the mystical experience. Part of it is definitely ego losing, um, ego losing um, realizations that help put your history and problems in a different perspective and allow your brain sort of to change the channel on what it determines as reality, right? So a lot of this stuff that we, a lot of our stuff is just the same ruminated, you know, stupid thoughts that, you, that we just continually have over and over and over and over and over again, right? We have these self-limiting beliefs and these circuits of, of, of whatever that creates your reality, right? Of what your history is or what you're capable of or who you are or whatever. Well, ketamine can just change that channel. Like, wow, now I know why I'm depressed or wow, now I, I have a different outlook. So 
it physiologically absolutely affects the brain. There are chemical changes in the brain and neuronal and dendritic growth and so forth. You're definitely shutting down glutamate, but there's absolutely part of that mystical experience in neuroplasticity that affects it. We, you know, we started recently doing ketamine assisted therapy, right? So the first couple of years we did ketamine, it was just like, you're gonna do your six sessions. You can kind of do brief later with your counselor or psychiatrist. And more recently, we've integrated, you know, a couple of therapists who are very experienced in guiding people in ketamine. Uh, now we actually switched to doing more of an oral ketamine in that situation because they're in a different setting than the office. But having the guided journey, I think, again, depends on why you're doing it, right? But if it's for depression or anxiety, I think that's really a well worth added value to, to, to help someone kind of help you navigate a therapist to help you navigate that. So, you know, I don't know if it's 60, 40 or 70, 30, but clearly there's, you know, there's physiological changes that happen in the brain that have been measured and, you know, photon microscopy has showed that dendritic neural growth and cool stuff like that. You can find those pictures, but clearly there's like the mystical experience and there's people who just describe just the, the lifting of their depression, just the water is not as deep. The problems aren't as heavy, everything, the sun's a little bit brighter, like things are just lighter. And then it, if in nothing else, it just puts them in touch with a way, wow, I, I don't have to be depressed. I can feel better. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's part of the system too. So, you know, yeah, I think, I think that that's not unfair to say that. I don't know if it's accurate, but it seems pretty reasonable. You know, there's definitely a, um, a spiritual journey that goes into the ketamine experience that I think it opens doors for people, as well as real physiological antidepressant changes that affect your central nervous system. Yeah. So you mentioned about the, the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. It, it brings to mind, you know, it seems like MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, uh, maybe psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, or treatment modalities that seem to be getting kind of fast-tracked and seem to be uh, ones that are going to be available for people, at least that yeah. I've seen in the research for like PTSD specifically. Are those, are you planning on integrating any of those treatments ever into your practice in the future? Oh yeah, absolutely. As soon as I can legally do it, and as soon as there's some recognized sort of treatment protocols that we can safely and with some evidence bring to people. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I think the whole serotonergic model of depression is inaccurate. You know, not to say it's not helpful for some people, but it's not, doesn't explain much. And even the American Psychiatric Association, after the publishing of that book, um, Anatomy of an Epidemic, had to come out and say, yeah, we really don't know much about depression in SSRIs. And we agreed that there's a lot more to the story. So yeah, NMDA and um, the mescaline derivatives and PCP derivatives like ketamine, which was actually invented as an alternative to PCP, all are gonna have a major, major role in in mental health. And, and, and the future of mental health is, gonna, is, is absolutely involved psychedelic therapy. So yes. for, for people listening, you know, there, there might be a bit of, um, a bit of confusion as far as, you know, with, with mental health conditions, there's often this comorbidity of, of substance abuse. And we've talked about, you know, how some of these different substances are really messing with people's lives. So how is it that, you know, some of these other substances like ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, you know, why, why are these things showing real significant improvements for people's mental health, whereas some of these other, you know, drugs and alcohol seem to really be destroying it. Well, these, the psychedelic modalities don't stimulate dopamine release. So they're not really addictive, physiologically addictive, right? So, so for something to be addictive, it's got to have a dopamine surge, like meth, like opiates, like I'll call on people. Psychedelics don't do that. They don't, they don't work on that system. So there's not an addiction, a physiological addiction to NMDA or to ketamine. Um, 
so I, you know, I, I think that any lasting treatment of substance use has to address people's underlying vulnerabilities, right? And connections and um, you have to understand the tools of recovery and understand what your triggers are and understand what your, just what your, what your shit is. Okay. Sorry, but you just have to understand what your shit is and psychedelics can give you a fast tracked way to understanding why you believe what you believe and way, why that may not be true. Right. Uh, so, and, and what, what else is going to do that? I mean, you can do, it's well known now that you can do psychedelic therapy and it can be more effective than years and years of therapy because you're changing your consciousness to receive information outside of what you're willing to, or knowingly able to filter. Now, in terms of, you know, your experience just in, in addiction medicine, what what are some of the co most common misconceptions that people have about substance abuse or addiction? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, it's a medical problem, right? So if you're, you know, if say you have uncontrolled asthma and you're stealing other people's inhalers and you're using your kid's nebulizer, you know, I mean, it's like you're addicted to albuterol. Okay. You're like, wow, you're really misusing this. You have an uncontrolled you have, you know, you have uncontrolled asthma. Well, if someone has an opiate addiction and they have behaviors that result in them needing to satisfy that addiction, I mean, that's where medication-assisted treatment comes in, right? Just as you're going to use a long-acting inhaled steroid to control asthma and minimize albuterol use, you could use a long-acting opiate like buprenorphine or methadone to control opiate addiction. Um, So I think that the thing I would want to say is that addiction affects everybody. You know, I'm like, say we've had people from all walks of life have substance abuse issues. Um, there's a lot of stigma around it, unfortunately. Um, I, I think that we need to be much more mainstream and make the treatment of addiction easier and more accessible, less expensive, just more available. For example, you know, buprenorphine, which is the standard of care now for opiate use disorder, most primary care physicians are not wavered and are not prescribing it, right? There's still treatment programs that are not supportive of using buprenorphine in, in an opiate recovery program, even though all the evidence suggests and that the risk of overdosing and dying is reduced 80% if you're on the medication-assisted treatment program. Your risk of relapsing are, is reduced significantly. You reduce this, your, your chance of staying in recovery are much longer if you're on medications for, for addiction. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's just people, uh, just the shame and the guilt that, uh, with addiction are obviously more real and present than other chronic medical problems, right? I mean, if your testes started hurting you, you probably wouldn't talk to all your friends about how your nuts are bothering you but it could be something serious, right? Like maybe you should get that checked out. Maybe you need ultrasound, maybe you have testicular cancer. I mean, but you don't because oh, I just, you know, it's just achy, I sat on my bike wrong or I spent too much time, you know, running, I don't know. But with, so I, I, one of my goals, Toby was to destigmatize addiction. And that's why the clinic is really the wellness group, right? That's why I'm name my clinic is the wellness group. It's not just, the addiction medicine group or the addiction treatment house or something. That's why I have, you know, groups. I have a nutritionist. I have therapists. I have wellness infusions. That's why we do other things too, right? When we do some men's health, we do some just, you know, high dose vitamin C. We help work with cancer patients. I mean, we all have something we need to improve on. We all have something that a health concern that we need to uh, optimize. So whether that's losing weight or whether that's, you know, you know, doing something else, it's like, there's so many things that affect us. 
addiction is just one of them. But when people come in here, they're like, wow, this is pretty nice for a drug treatment program. <laughs> like, what, what are you expecting? Like a bunk, you know, concrete room in a bunk. You deserve that because that's what you deserve, right? No, it's, it's, you know, it's like, let's talk about it. Let's address it and let's treat it. Now, I don't want to pretend like medication is the only treatment for addiction. I mean, I think medication is 10% of the treatment for addiction. I think 90% is, you know, counseling and support and groups and programming and accountability and working your stuff out. But my point is, is that I think that uh, it's been nice that you know, opiate use treatment, which is, you know, obviously most of what we do and alcohol use treatment is, is, is a little bit more recognized. You know, I think, I don't know, I think it's okay now to be in recovery. I don't think you need to hide that from your friends as much, or if you're drinking non-alcoholic beer, or if you're not, you know, partying, you know, people are good with it. So I, I, I'm, I think that times are shifting a little bit. And, uh, and I think more and more treatment is available. I mean, you know, my background's emergency medicine and you know, at least from that perspective, a lot of these treatments like, you know, lies medicines we use now are now available in the emergency departments, which wasn't the case even just a few years ago. So I think that's a win. So look, if we can just destigma, you know, if we can just destigmatize it, make it more accessible, then I think that would be a good first step. Well, that's good. It sounds like things are moving in the right direction there. In terms of, you know, I've, I've seen research as far as you know, in states where, you know, cannabis is legal, you know, decreases in like opioid related deaths. I just wanted to hear your take on cannabis since, you know, people, I guess, use, a lot, you know, use it to replace other, maybe more addictive drugs. But even though it is at least psychologically could be addictive in its own respect. Now, when it comes to, you know, addiction, what, what's your take on, on, the cannabinoids, CBD, THC, and what role they play? Well, I certainly have seen some very serious uh, health and mental health problems from cannabis use, specifically young people getting into high THC concentrates that have called, that have caused significant psychosis and mental health problems. I think that's the exception though. Um, you know, the cannabinoid system is very useful and helpful. I think that the vast majority of people who are using cannabis do so in a very reasonable way, even just even if it's all just recreational. I, I really don't really have a problem with it. You know, I, I mean, uh, like it, it's like, it's not a problem until it's a problem, right? I mean, having a drink or two a week having a beer once or twice a week is not a problem, right? If you're smoking weed all day, there's, it's, it's probably causing problems you're not aware of, you know? If you're, you know, having a little five milligram or 10 milligram edible at night to help you sleep, there's probably not a big problem with that, you know? So addiction is defined as really um, a compulsive use of something in association, in association with negative consequences. So can, you know, cannabis be a problematic and cause problems and result in some addiction? Yeah. Is it a gateway drug? No, it's not. Is it safe? Yes. Are there really health, are there really good medical indications for taking, using cannabis and THC? Yes. Are there really good health indications for abusing fentanyl? No, probably not. <laughs> um, so uh, and look, in, in where I practice in California, you know, mar marijuana is legal. So every, every patient's on, you know, cannabis. So it's not, I, I've never had, well, it's not true. I've had maybe one or two patients in 10 years of doing addiction medicine come in just for cannabis abuse. It, it just doesn't cause the destruction that alcohol abuse and opiate abuse and, and other things cause. So uh, you know, so it's kind of tricky. It's really dependent up to the, it depends on the individual. Like my wife uses a THC CBD cream for pain. That's great. We have CBD products in the office that are great for inflammation and anxiety. We actually use them in our detox program. I think they have very little to no THC in it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm supportive of it. I, I really, uh, I'm actually, I guess, pretty pro cannabis in general. But, you know, being an addiction medicine specialist, I can kind of have to be tame about my response to that. 
Uh, I think it causes more good than harm for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Sar, we're, <laughs> we're coming up onto the end of the show here. Yeah. Right, right. Any, any last, any closing thoughts, anything that we haven't covered yet in our discussion of addiction or mental health treatment uh, that you feel like would be important to leave the listeners with? Uh, no, just, um, you know, I'm always mindful to talk about addiction real respectively, because if I'm in a room, even in like an educational environment, probably 25% of people in that room have an active substance use problem. Maybe they're abusing Ambien or maybe they're drinking cough syrup, or maybe they're drinking alcohol too much. I mean, so this is really just a widespread issue and um, just nice to kind of just help people get help. And it, it just takes so much to just forgive yourself and move forward. You know, the, the windshield's always bigger than the rearview mirror for a reason. So it's just a good, I'm just, I'm happy there's more treatment. I'm happy there's more accessibility to treatment. I think health providers are more aware of substance use problems now than they were in the past. So, uh, no, but thanks for what you do. And thanks for, you know, having this interesting podcast and having me on as a guest. Of course, of course. And if people want to find out more about your clinic, where would you direct them to? Well, we have a YouTube channel called Ken Star MD Wellness, which I would love to have more subscribers. So send out a link to that. Um, we have a website, it's just kenstarmd.com, which lists our, um, just kind of general clinic information, of course. Um, the website, the YouTube channel has a lot of information, a lot of questions answered, a lot of topics that we discuss. Um, and then we have a supplement program where we, we actually sell some specific supplements like the NAD and so forth. And that's called, that's called getcleansupplements.com getcleansupplements.com. So that's something that we've put together too. So yeah, we kind of got our hands in a few things. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I encourage you guys to go check that out. And for the listeners who enjoy the show, go ahead and like, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And you can also uh, subscribe on whatever audio platform that you listen to the podcast on, whether that be Spotify, Apple podcasts, or any of the other major platforms, we are on them all. Dr. Starr, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show today and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. Well, thanks, Toby. Thanks again for having me. I sure appreciate it. Of course. Welcome to Toby's Takeaways, the segment where I break down some of the most important takeaways from the interview that I just recorded with Dr. Starr. First takeaway is that people are drawn to use substances and may be prone to addiction when they have a dysregulated dopaminergic system. Dopamine is a key neurotransmitter involved in motivation and compulsion. Addictive drugs cause large releases of dopamine. The second takeaway from the interview is that NAD is a coenzyme critical to cellular metabolism, energy production, DNA repair, gene expression, and healthy aging. Dr. Starr uses IV NAD in his treatment facility, and it's a safe and effective way to treat addictions, especially alcohol and opiate withdrawal. The last takeaway is that ketamine is a psychiatric therapy here to stay. You may remember a few episodes ago, we had anesthesiologist Dr. David Majubi on the show discussing ketamine. Dr. Starr also uses ketamine to treat major depression, pain conditions, and some research suggests that it may also play a role in addiction treatment. 